This is the word of the Lord. Every one of us is seeking freedom. I mean, if you think about it. Every one of us wants to be free. We want to be financially free. Um, we want personal freedom. We don't want too much uh, control in our life. We don't want people, you know, controlling us from the outside. We want freedom from addiction. We want freedom from tyranny, political freedom. We want freedom from our parents. If you're younger, you can't wait. As a parent of three teenagers, I definitely experienced that, their, their desire for freedom. But what's interesting is the irony that around the subject of freedom is this, that often the things that we look to for freedom, in the end, can enslave us. Like, I think of technology. And growing up in the 70s and the 80s, uh, there was so much discussion around how much technology was going to free us and give us what we were longing for, right? So they would talk about personal computing. And at the time, in the 70s and 80s, for example, my dad taught at a university in Indiana, Purdue, and, and the, he was in charge of, uh, of literally bringing in uh, the computer systems for Purdue at that time. They were so large, they would fit in a room like this size. They were made in Germany. It took years to get there and to install, and they used vacuums, and they used cards, he would have these boxes of these computer cards in our house, and they would be programs that would, for, for graduate students, and he would bring the whole family together and say, if any of you, I mean, if you touch one of these cards, you will literally destroy my life's work. Don't even look at these cards. Don't. And so he would tell me, though, as sort of a computer expert, like, there is coming a day where we will have computers in our house. <laughs> no way. And who could imagine we'd have computers, you know, in our pocket, in our purse? And they, we were told at that time in the 70s and the 80s that someday when this happens, it's going to be your freedom. You'll no longer have to go to work. You can work from anywhere. You'll be free. You can work from anywhere. You'll be free. And now we can work from anywhere. Whoops. So we're always working. And we never stop working because we can work from anywhere. It's supposed to be our freedom. But I don't feel very free. If, I don't know how you feel. I feel pretty bound up, pretty tied to this thing that walks with me, talks with me. It goes everywhere I go, and, and it is not feeling like freedom to me. Paul is making a drastic point this morning, and it's this. Living under the law is slavery and living under the gospel is your freedom. And in the whole context of the book of Galatians, this letter that he's writing, he is pleading with these Christians who once embraced the gospel through faith in Jesus Christ alone and nothing else, have returned to law-keeping as the means of their being right with God or their justification. They're looking to their obedience to the law now, and they're being taught that this, was, this is what they should do, and Paul is so concerned for their freedom. We're going to see two things from our passage. First of all is this, the history and the allegory of the story of Hagar and the story of Sarah and their sons corresponding. The history and the allegory, verses 21 through 26, and then grace for the barren and for the disappointed, verses 27 through 31. The gospel's good news. There's grace for the barren woman. First, the history and the allegory, verses 21 through 26. 
Paul started this church. He preached the gospel to them. They had embraced faith in Jesus plus nothing. And then later, as we've been talking about, these teachers from Jerusalem came along and began to bind their conscience, saying, Jesus alone, faith in Jesus alone, is not enough for you to be right with God. You need to add Judaism, strict Jewish observance, to your faith in order to be right with God. You people are too sinful. You're too messed up. You need the law also. There's no way God will just accept you by faith alone. And he's telling, they're telling them, these false teachers are telling them, this will be your freedom. And Paul's saying, no, it'll be your slavery. In verse 21, he asks those questions. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? He's saying to them, have you not read it? <laughs> Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Have you not read the law? Do you not see how impossible it is to keep? The intent of the law ultimately was to lead us for our need of grace, our need of what Christ would provide. And by under the law, when he says, you who desire to be under the law, Paul does not mean obeying the law. Instead, he means looking to it as your performance, as your standing and acceptance with God. And to make his point this morning, Paul references a biblical story about the two sons of Abraham. The two sons of Abraham. Let me reread from verses 22 through 26. For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically, and he's going into this allegory. These women represent two covenants, one from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery, Hagar, now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. The identity of the Jewish people to this day is bound up in being the children of Abraham, right? The children of Abraham. And if you grew up in Sunday school class at all, you probably grew up singing this song, Father Abraham. Do you know the song? Had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, <laughs> and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Then it goes on. Let's do it. Let's second verse. No, kidding. <laughs> They're being told, you're not children of Abraham by faith. You're children of Abraham by law. <laughs> and Paul says, no, as soon as as soon as you add the works of the law, you actually cease to be the children of Abraham. And he tells them this story, these stories about Father Abraham and his two sons. Abraham was the very first Israelite that God called to himself, and God promised him that he and his wife Sarah would have a son, a, a genetic son through Sarah, and the heirs of that son would live in the land that God promised them. And through that heir would come a blessing to the entire world. This is Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. But if you know the story at all, you know there's an enormous problem facing them, and it's this, that Abraham, right, is a very old man, and his wife, who's not young at the time, she's younger than him, but not young, is barren, without children. 
and God has promised them, you're going to have an heir, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait, but there's no baby whatsoever. And so Sarah convinces Abraham, right, to sleep with their servant Hagar, who was young and fertile. And he did, and Hagar gave birth to their son, Ishmael. Tim Keller writes in his book, Galatians for You, that we've been tracking along with in this series. He writes this, By sleeping with Hagar, Abraham was choosing to rely on his own capabilities. He was opting to work and gain his son. He was acting in faith, but the faith he had was in himself as his own savior. As you can imagine, (laughs) in this scenario... With Hagar, things did not turn out very well for anybody in the story. It's a horrible story. If you read the the historical account of what happened, it is horrible for Hagar. Uh, She has this child uh, not really covenanted with Abraham. And by the way, God in, in the scriptures never blesses polygamy. It's throughout the Old Testament, but it is never blessed of God. In fact, it constantly is illustrating how it takes advantage of women, and it's a horrible situation culturally and for people in general. It is never blessed. It's just reported. Later, when Sarah was old and Abraham was extremely old, Sarah gave birth to the son of promise, Isaac, which means laughter. And it was very, very funny because now, at this point, Abraham is extremely old, Sarah is extremely old, and she's been barren all of these years. Now, Paul is telling us this story That's the history. Now, let's talk about the allegory. And the allegory is a bit disturbing, and you need to understand Paul's main point. Because the reality is this. As you read the history of the story, there's a victim in the story, and it's not Sarah. It is Hagar. You have a situation where this young woman who's serving these people is taken advantage of, forced into this situation, and then she has a child, and later, because they, of course, the end result of this is jealousy on Sarah's part, and they kick Hagar and her son Ishmael out of the family. And what you also see in the real historical account is this. It is a lack of faith in Abraham's point, and it's a lack of faith in Sarah's point. They're not trusting in the promise at all. Instead, they're trusting, Keller just said it, in their own work. They quit looking to God's promises by faith, and instead they took matters into their own hand and said, we will get it done. God said this, but we will take matters into our own hands, and we will get this work accomplished on our own. But Paul is using this story allegorically allegorically to simply make this main point. Hagar, who is young and fertile, represents putting your faith in your own abilities to keep the law and to earn salvation. While Sarah, who is old and barren, utterly physically incapable of bearing a child, represents God's promise and God's grace and miraculous intervention in providing a child, which equals our salvation through grace, through faith alone. Now, Paul is writing to them saying, put your hope in Christ alone. Put your hope in the promises of God alone. Otherwise, you become like this woman who was enslaved. You become enslaved to the law. Now, unlike the Galatians, what's You're my audience today. The Galatians were Paul's audience. I don't see any of you trying to earn your salvation through the Jewish dietary law. 
perhaps I'm wrong. Maybe there are a few of you. But most of you are not saying, hey, I'm going to look to the Old Testament. I'm going to read carefully Leviticus and Deuteronomy. I'm going to keep the Old Testament law. I'm going to not eat these things. I am going to eat these things. I'm going to observe these days. And I'm going to look to those things for my salvation. So in one respect, I don't see a one-to-one application there because I don't think any of you are probably doing that. However, I think all of you, (laughs) including myself, are looking to people, things, ideas, and usually it's something within ourselves on trying to build a righteousness that is apart from God and have something outside of Christ be the foundation of our hope for salvation. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing, but we always want to add something there instead of the nothing part, and we say Jesus alone is my rock, Jesus alone is my hope, Jesus alone is my foundation. All of us are wanting to add something right there. You tracking? And while you don't have maybe the Jewish law that you're looking to, the dietary restrictions, the the, the obligations, the days, the holy days, that kind of thing, you may be looking to the law of being a good person. The law of being a good person. That is the gospel according to the United States. That's the gospel of the West, that if you die today and you stand before a holy God, what is your only hope? That basically, I have been a good person. It's probably just the gospel of humanity. And Paul says, that's not gospel. (laughs) Because you're not good enough. You may be good compared to me, but I'm not your standard. Holy God is. Almost everyone that I've ever talked to about you know, Christ and the gospel that is not yet a follower of Jesus, why would you have confidence to stand before a holy God? It's, I'm basically a good person. The law of physical appearance. You may say, well, I'm not, I'm not gonna try to get God to accept me that way, but you accept yourself or don't accept yourself based on how good you're looking at any given moment. We compare ourselves with people on Instagram, and it's amazing to me that we do this because have you not seen these professional Instagrammers out and about? I'm on the beach last year with my family, and there's this gaggle of junior high girls on the beach. Like, imagine me with luscious long hair, okay? Like, doing this and looking, looking. Now take the picture, you know? And they would all gather and look and go, nah, no, nah, it's not good enough. Do it again. And then, then this angle, no, 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 back and over and over and over, waiting until the perfect picture and then only presenting, right, that perfect picture. And we look at physical appearance and say, if I could just lose 10 more pounds, if I could just be bald, if I could just whatever, like, <laughs> I'll then be perfect and then I'll be accepted and then I'll be let in. And I know you don't believe God thinks that, but in your heart of hearts, you think I'll be justified, I'll be right. The law of financial success. I don't wrestle with money in terms of like uh, materialism as much, like I I don't really want a Porsche or I don't need a bigger house or anything, but I'll tell you where I do wrestle with finances and it's the idea of security, right? 
if I can, there is a number that's big enough that if I could just have, I could rest a little easier at night knowing that if, you know, something happens or if I, it comes to retirement, that I will have enough money to provide, put food on the table for my family and so forth for a long period of time, right? Security. And I'm tempted to put my hope in that to say that, that's my thing. That's going to be my faith. That, it, just enough to have a nest egg that combined with Social Security and I'm getting old enough and I'm starting to think about these things that maybe we can get enough together to have enough. And there's nothing, hear me, please plan. <laughs> please save. Americans, we're not saving enough. But please don't put that as your God. It's not enough. Money can't save us. It can never be our true security. God alone is, is God. We look to the law of being a good person, the law of physical appearance, the law of financial success, the law of career achievement, the law of good grades and test scores. Just went through that with one son, now we've got two more in the queue, and you take the ACT and you feel all this pressure and you go to school and you hear, did you hear so-and-so got a near-perfect score and so-and-so did get a perfect score and so-and-so got into that Ivy League school and the comparison game, the pressure... If I could just get that score, that scholarship, that school. The law of popularity, the law of fame, the law of whatever. Whatever that thing is, you're going, that would be my freedom. If I could get that, that nest egg would be my freedom. That look, that would be my freedom. That weight those grades, this, this, if I could be vice president <laughs> of my company, then. And Paul says, look, that's never, never your freedom. And it's ironic, it is so ironic that the thing that we usually look to, once we get it, it often enslaves us, it often binds us. For each of us, we're either resting in the gospel which brings freedom or we're seeking to justify ourselves by another means of the gospel, and it just, it doesn't work. The next point I want us to see this morning is this, from the story, is grace for the barren and the disappointed. In verse 27, Paul is quoting the prophet Isaiah, and he writes this, Isaiah writes it, and so does Paul, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Re rejoice. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has had a husband. Paul is trying to comfort them by saying, look at Hagar and look at Sarah. Hagar was young and she was fertile and she was able to bear children, but God chose to bless the woman the woman of promise was Sarah. And what's fascinating is it's not because Sarah's good. Read the story. Sarah is not a great lady in terms of her character. Have you read the story of Abraham? He is not necessarily the greatest guy on planet earth, but God chose him to be his first, uh, the first Israelite on the account of grace. He's not more righteous than his neighbor. In fact, you see in the story that he's often not. 
It's not the strong that are blessed in the gospel. It's often the weak. It's not those who are able to bear a child. It is the desolate. It is the barren woman. And I love how in the Bible, because the idolatry of the ancient Near East was this. If you were a woman, your entire identity was wrapped up in what? The ability to A, be married, and B, to have children, and C, to have a male child. (laughs) Think of the pressure. You had to be married to have any value and any security. You had to be able to have children, and you really needed to produce a male son. A son, that's redundant. (laughs) That was your security. And if you weren't able to do those things, then you were not only a, a failure in your own eyes, you were a failure to your family. And I love how the entire Old Testament and New Testament is a story of God circumventing that because it is often the barren woman that is the hero. Look at Sarah, look at Rebecca, look at Elizabeth. The Bible is filled with these stories of the barren woman being the one who is ultimately blessed in a salvific way, but also in a way of great miraculous work. Sarah, Rebecca, and Elizabeth are just examples. Tim Keller writes this, if salvation is by works, then only the fertile can have children. Only the morally able and strong, the people from good families, the folks with good records can be spiritually fruitful, enjoy the love and joy of God, and transform the lives of others. If. But if the gospel is true, it doesn't matter who you are or who you were, you may be a spiritual and moral outcast, as marginal as the single barren woman in those ancient days, it doesn't matter, you will bear fruit the kind that last. And the gospel says grace is not just for fertile Hagar's, but for barren Sarah's. If Sarah can have a future, then anyone can. If Sarah can have a future, you can have a future. Do you see yourself, honestly, some of you tend to be more self-righteous than others, but some of you You live with this repeated theme in your mind, I will never be good enough. God will never accept me. How could God ever accept me? The shame that I bear, the sin that that I've committed, the sins that have been committed against me, I've done too much, I've seen too much, I'm an unclean person. There's no way. There's hope. (laughs) The gospel is hope for all people. The gospel is hope not for the person that can provide the work, not for the good person, not for the righteous person. The gospel is hope for people like you and me, the broken, the least, the lost, the people who are desperate. For us, there's hope. God had promised Abraham to provide a son through an old man and a barren woman, and it would require God's radical intervention and require faith in his promise, obvious. But instead of trusting in God's plan by faith, Sarah and Abraham turned from faith and they sought a son through something they could control. And salvation by grace requires us to have faith and to depend upon Christ alone and to reject our strategies for trying to earn it. We are always doing this. In Galatians for you, Tim Keller talks about how there are these four types of people in the world. I want to I spend some time as we, as we bring closure to this 
talking about the four different types of people that are in the world. And whenever anybody reduces the whole world to four types or this and that, and there's only two types of people, you know, I tend to not listen, but, but this one's good. There are law-obeying and law-relying people. Law-obeying, law-relying. These people are under the law. They are trying to earn their salvation through the law. That's what that means to be under the law. They are self-righteous, and they act superior, meaning no one obeys God's law perfectly, but they're trying very hard, and they rely upon the law. They're under the law. Outwardly, they seem confident that they're right with God, but deep down, they're insecure because no one, no one, no one can be truly sure they've done enough. No one. They are defensive deep down, sensitive and touchy to criticism. They have to be because they're relying upon the law. This is their salvation. There is as much in common with the Pharisees in Jesus' day, and sadly, this is what breaks my heart, the church in America often looks just like this. Not a gospel-receiving, gospel-relying person, but someone who's turned into a Pharisee because they're relying upon the law instead of the grace of God. Can we admit that's true? There is a reason why the whole world points to the church and says it is filled with hypocrites. How much we need to rely upon the gospel. Secondly, there are law-disobeying and yet law-relying people law-disobeying, and law-relying people. They believe their only hope is the law. If I do enough, God might accept me, but the reality is they know they're not keeping up. They're law-relying, but they're law-disobeying. These folks have a strong sense of right and wrong and a religious background, but they know they're not consistent with their convictions. And while they are more humble and tolerant than the Pharisees, they live in guilt and shame because they aren't keeping up and they know they're not. They may go to church, but they tend to live on the outskirts, right? Because I can't, I can't come in and show you my brokenness. You'll reject me because I'm relying on the law. Not grace. And they assume everyone else around them is too. And so if that's you this morning and you're living on the outskirts of church and you're saying, I could never join a small group, I could never enter into this community, I'm pleading with you, enter in. I am a profoundly sinful human being right here that is only going to be saved if I die today and I stand before a holy God. My only hope, trust me, trust me, my only hope is the righteousness of Jesus Christ in his life and his death and his resurrection. It is not because I've been a better person than you or anybody else. And if that's, that's true of me, that's true of my elders here, that's true of the small group leaders here, that's true of our Sunday school teachers here, that's true of all of us. We are people desperately in need of the gospel, so welcome. If you're a sinner, welcome. You found a good place. Third, there are law disobeying, not law relying folks. And I think this is the great majority of people in our culture. Increasingly intellectual, secular, and morally relativistic. Often open to spirituality, but only in the vague and general sense, and they create their own moral standard or are swayed by whatever is popular in the cultural moment. You do you, is how I like to summarize it right now. You just do you. There is no should, there is no ought. Whatever you want to do, you just ought to do that thing. 
And in spite of being relativistic, there's still a strong sense of self-righteousness. There are absolutely no absolutes, right? You can't avoid self-righteousness no matter what your worldview. I'm inclusive of all people except for those people whom I deem as not being inclusive. In Romans 1, Paul talks about ultimately everyone has an intuitive sense that there is a God and that there is a right and wrong, that there's a law and that we're not living up to it. C.S. Lewis in his great book, Mere Christianity, says, look, (laughs) everyone's a moral relativist until you go to an elementary school cafeteria. (laughs) If you're a moral relativist, go to an elementary school cafeteria and I want you to go cut in front of the line, right? To the, to the very front of the line as everyone's in queue or everyone's lining up to go in and, and get their food, their nasty school cafeteria food. Like, so, no offense if that's you. I just offended the cafeteria worker. Please forgive me. So like, I'm just talking about my own experience. Okay, so like as you're in line and, and, and you go cut in line, how much moral relativism are you gonna find there among those children? Everyone is gonna be outraged. You're cutting. It's wrong to cut. Cutters are unfair. (laughs) There are no moral relativists in any elementary school. They just don't exist. Fourth, law obeying, not law relying. And this is who Christ is calling us to be. Obeying the law, not perfectly. Only Christ has but we seek to obey because we've been so loved by God and the Holy Spirit has come upon us in our life and now out of joy, out of gratitude, out of hope and love, we want to respond in grace by obeying but not in order to get God to accept us but because we already are accepted. Church, that's what we're called to be. Law obeying not to get salvation, but not law relying. This cannot be our hope. We were talking about the two sons of Abraham, but there was another unlikely son who was born in the country of Israel. Not just born to a barren woman, which was miraculous. That was a miraculous birth, but even more miraculous is the birth of Jesus Christ, right? Born of a virgin. Fully God, fully man. He comes to earth, incarnated into the world, born of a virgin. He lives a perfect life, a perfectly holy, righteous life. He then suffers under Pontius Pilate, which we will talk about at Easter next Sunday. He suffers and he dies. He goes to hell on our behalf, and then he is raised on the third day. That's your hope. That's our confidence. It can never be the law. It can never be the law. And when you begin to put your hope and your trust and your joy and your life in in him, in what he's done, the man who lived and died and rose again, guys, this is what happens. You now become a son and a daughter, and and even though you are that, you begin to live into that, and that's what's important. Pastor Tyson was talking about adoption a few weeks ago. You have to live into your adoption. Most of you are adopted, but you don't even live like you are adopted. You're still living like you're orphans, right? I had this friend in high school named Aaron. He was Vietnamese. And he and his brother were adopted 
by one of the wealthiest family in this small town that I went to high school in, small town in central Kentucky, just outside of Lexington. Everybody knew everybody. And Aaron and his brother were adopted by one of the physicians in town, and they lived in this beautiful house where they had horses and, and huge property. But when Aaron first came to the United States and was living with Dr. Ramey and his family, they were brought in. He was a son. He was fully adopted. He was, had his name changed. He, he, he literally was an heir of this man and, and his wife. Fully a son, and yet in those first years when he, they adopted him, they would find their sons out in the garbage, scrounging through the trash, trying to find food to hoard and keep in their room. Why? They didn't realize or weren't living into the reality that they were the adopted sons of an amazing father. They were still living like orphans, still literally eating out of the trash like orphan kids on the street, even though they were living in a mansion, had all the rights and privileges of a great man. How much more so is that true of you and me? You're eating out of the trash. So often you're eating out of the trash, man. <laughs> because you don't realize whom you are. You're a daughter of Jesus Christ. You're a son of God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, free us. Free us from the trash from the garbage pit. Lord, you've opened up the door. You've let us in. You, you've said, my son is enough. My son is enough. His, his life, his death, his resurrection, it's all, it's all enough. Welcome. You enter the kingdom. We are now members of the kingdom of God, citizens. And at the family level, we're adopted. We're the adopted children of God. And yet, Father, we live as if we're orphans scrounging in the trash, insecure, fearful, seeking approval in all the wrong ways. Oh, Lord, free us. Free us from the law of physical appearance, from the law of money, the law of career, the law of grades, the law of popularity, the law of fame, the law of social media. Free us, Lord, to find our identity in you and to quit adding our righteousness and looking to you. God, we ask this in Jesus' good name. Amen.